0: Amen. Well hopefully you found uh, numbers 11 uh, by now, page 147. Uh, In the years that followed uh, the Second World War in Australia, the the nation was rebuilding itself after the depression, after the effects of uh, the Second World War, things were booming. uh, Riding on the back of plentiful natural resources that are all throughout uh, the land in Australia, the industry surged and for many it was a great time uh, to be living there. Uh, We were known, or at least we referred to ourselves as the lucky country. And one such group uh, who, who regarded themselves as lucky uh, at this point in time were those who worked in the uh, asbestos industry in Australia, working the giant asbestos mines that Australia had. Uh, during this time, demand for asbestos went through the roof. Uh, anything that was being rebuilt, uh, anything that needed insulation, was packed full of asbestos. And so more and more uh, was needed and we had plenty to, to give. And so for those who are working in the industry, it was a pretty good job, a great job. What could go wrong? And yet as they worked the mines or as others installed asbestos insulation and so on, they were living and breathing an atmosphere that was slowly killing them. Every breath, every fibre that they took into their lungs spread more carcinogens into their blood. It set off a ticking bomb that for most of them didn't explode until the late 80s and 90s. Sometimes it's hard to see the danger coming, isn't it? Some dangers are the opposite of that though. Some dangers in our lives are obvious. We see the danger, we see the potential damage and we make getting rid of that danger a priority. And I think the same is true when it comes to the danger of sin in the Christian life. Sometimes the danger is obvious. Sometimes we can see a sin and we know we want to be rid of that in our lives. We can see the damage coming. But some sins seem harmless of course they're not good uh, we know that but they're not that bad either are they and today and for the next few weeks we explore one such sin the sin of grumbling and I reckon on a scale of sins that we fret about on a scale of sins that we worry that it's in our lives uh, the sin of grumbling hardly rates a mention and it's not for the lack of it is it you name it we complain about it our politicians the line in the co-op, the weather, how tired we are, our family, the people we have to work with and of course we complain about people who complain. (laughs) We all do it and so often, so it can't be that bad. It's kind of funny, kind of endearing in a way, it's just the air we breathe. But what if the air we breathe, infused with grumbling as it is, is not harmless but deadly? It sounds like an overreaction, doesn't it? it? sounds like some sort of preaching hyperbole, but that which we make light of, the Bible fails to see the joke. Did you hear it in 1 Corinthians 10, read for us just before, verse 10? Do not grumble, as some of them did and were killed by a destroying angel. And then further down in the passage, these things happened to them as examples and were written down for us as a warning. So that you who think you stand firm must be careful lest you fall. the Bible takes the sin of grumbling very seriously and for the next three Sundays we're going to set up camp in Numbers 11 with the people camped in the wilderness, God's people to see just how serious a problem it is and how powerful it is in our lives. And so as we start, uh, as we look at this this, uh, book of Numbers and chapter 11 in particular, let's Let me just put us in the picture of what this book is about. Essentially Numbers, and especially Numbers 11, is the story of God's presence, his provision and his patience for a grumbling people. That's what this whole book is about. It's a book that covers some 39 years of the history of God's people as they wandered through the desert on the way to the Promised Land. They were wandering there after being powerfully rescued by our God. It's a journey that should have taken 11 days and yet some 39 years later they were still on their way because of unfaithfulness. And so as we zoom in on Numbers 11, we reach them beginning the most difficult part of their journey. They've left the surrounding areas of Sinai where there was plenty to go around and now they're in the desert with very little. And as they travel through this desert, they meet communities uh, who make the desert their home, call it their home. And along the way, some of them are drawn into God's people, God's community. We meet one of them in the previous chapter, chapter 10, a man by the name of Hobab, a Midianite, who the leader of God's people, uh, Moses, says this to him. He says, God has promised to be good to us. Why don't you come with us? It's going to be great. And so off they go in the desert, a long way from their new home, led by their God who is present with them, all with the promise that he will be good to them. And then we reach Numbers 11, a story that will indeed show us the power of grumbling. And really Numbers 11 is two stories if you look at it. The first three verses recounts the events at a place called Tabera. And then in verse 4 onwards we have the events at a place called Kibroth Hattava. Now the first story, the first three verses is really very simple. The people grumble against the Lord. The Lord responds with anger and a judgment of fire and it begins on the outskirts of the camp and it starts to creep in and then Moses intercedes for them, he prays for them and the fire calms down. And over the next three weeks, that simple story is going to help us understand the larger story of verse 4 onwards, a story that's going to show us just how powerful grumbling is. Have a look at verse 4 with me. The rabble with them began to crave other food and again the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost and also cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but manna. If you look at verses 4 to 6, the sin seems pretty petty, doesn't it? Just like our grumbling. But it's not. Scan down to the end of the chapter, verse 33, and you will see where this grumbling will lead. Disaster, death in the desert. And it all starts, we're told in verse 4, with a rabble, a word that we use quite a lot, but it's a, a technical Hebrew word that really means those who are hanging around God's people but aren't God's people. Those who live in the wilderness, they are the ones who began to grumble about the troubles in the land and their grumbling spreads like some airborne disease into the hearts of the Israelites who join in. They see the hardships of this desert and they look back to Egypt and Egypt for them in verse 5 is painted as the land flowing with milk and honey or at least fish and veggies and this land, this desert has nothing but boring manner. It's such a banal complaint isn't it? Pathetic. Sounds a bit like a child moaning at tea time, not this Again But remember where this leads. And remember what 1 Corinthians has told us, that God isn't sharing this story just to interest us, but to warn us in case we who stand should fall. And so this morning, let me suggest four lessons that I think we must heed from this story about grumbling. And the first is this. Grumbling is contagious. Grumbling filled the atmosphere in the desert. It was the air they breathed. And you see how it spreads? It starts with this rabble, a people without hope, a people for whom the desert life is all there is. There's no other land other than this. And as Israel travelled through, they met communities like that, living in the desert, organised, yes, purposeful, yes, but ultimately craving something more. And as we heed the lessons of this story, I think we need to see the parallel with our own world because it's just the same. We too are surrounded by communities of people craving for more than this world can ever give. And as hope in our world sort of flares up and then fades, it's no surprise that grumbling results. Take, for example, Britain, 2010. Don't we feel this short-lived, fast-fading hope uh, with our political leaders? One week into an election campaign and it already feels too long. There's this craving for change but no belief that it's ever going to come. There's the hope of new labour back in 1997 that seems to have faded. Nothing new about it now. Their manifesto this week was greeted with nothing but indifference really. They've heard this tune before. And then you have the Tories with what seemed like a group hug type manifesto, a vision of people power. And I suspect, again, uh, many in the north of England will note with irony that the idea of people power coming from a Tory government, having seen up close what that looks like in the past. The people of Britain crave more and complain when it is promised and not delivered. And that's just one sphere of life. But in fact, every facet of human life in the wilderness is marked by disquiet. That's the reality when you live estranged from God. That's the reality when you live far from him. But within this wilderness, in Numbers 11, there is an amazing community, Israel. A people, not because of anything in and of themselves, but because of God's amazing mercy, have been rescued. Are people who have a living, certain hope and are walking through this desert on the way to that hope. God has promised it. And so as they walk through, they live like strangers in the wilderness on their journey home and they are to take great care as they do, not to succumb to the atmosphere of complaint all around them. But how hard it is to avoid. Verse 4, again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat began with a rabble and it easily passes to those who have this hope who should know better. And by verse 11 do you see it even affects their leader, Moses. They grumble about food, uh, he grumbles about them. In the five verses from verse 11 onwards, Moses refers to I, me and my some 20 times. So consumed is he by his own apparent hardships that he loses sight of God's provision. So instead of trusting God to do good things for Israel, as he told Hobab, remember the Midianite, he said, he's going to do good for us. He's forgotten all that. He questions God's ability to do it. And even when God reminds him again in this chapter, yes, I will do it, he wants to know how. Give me the evidence. Do you see how contagious grumbling is? It can affect all, even the leaders within God's people. And so heed the lesson of this contagious disease. And know that this community that you're in this morning is not some clean zone free from it. You are surrounded by people affected by grumbling. You ever notice that? Hard to miss, isn't it? And we don't just grumble when we're together as a church family. That, that's in fact the tip of the iceberg. Have a look at verse 10 and there you'll see where most of the grumbling happens. Moses heard the people of every family wailing each at the entrance to his tent. We grumble at home. You ever felt that? Uh, Free from uh, the the, the public, uh, free from uh, our sort of pretense of whatever we may be, that's where we grumble about all sorts of things. Our day at work or the kids or the NHS or the neighbour or each other, you name it, we grumble. And for the next two weeks uh, after today, we will focus on how to overcome this powerful sin. But for now, the first lesson is simply this. If grumbling is contagious, and it is, it means that in the words of 1 Peter, we need to live as strangers in this wilderness with great care. So take care as you work with those who have no hope beyond this land. Take great care as you live amongst other parents in the school community. Take great care how you engage with those in your social circles and know that the air you breathe will be suffused with grumbling. Take care, you who stand on this hope, lest you fall, says God. Now, here's the second lesson. You can see it over the page on the outline. Grumbling is caused by unbelief. If you look through at Numbers 11, what becomes clear, I think, is that grumbling comes from a fatally flawed view of reality in which the past and present is misread and we totally lose sight of the future. You see the way uh, the Israelites view their past in verse 5. They say, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Oh, Egypt the great. But you've got to ask, if it was such a glorious place, why were they so desperate to leave? Somehow in the wilderness it has slipped their mind that they were abject slaves in Egypt living a meaningless and painful life, making bricks without straw. They were spurred on by whips, they were killed if they failed and yes, they were given the odd cucumber and fish to keep alive. Massive misreading of the past. And even their present uh, view is flawed. Verse 6, but now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manner. Truth is, and we'll see more of this next week, their lives were full of God's provision. Every day, every need was met without fail. But infected with this disease of grumbling, they wanted more. I reckon there are huge implications in this lesson for us and next week we will explore in depth how to reset this faulty vision that we can so easily have. But for now, let me point out where this unbelief comes from. It comes from two words you see in verse 4. If only. If only. They are the two words that drive dissatisfaction, I think, in our world. They are the words of a heart that craves more. If only. For them it was if only we had meat, but for us it can be all sorts of things, can't it? If only I could find a job. If only I could change my job. If only if I didn't have to work with him. Sorry, I didn't mean to (laughs) apologize unbelievable Uh, if only I'd gone to the doctor at the first sign of pain if only we'd had more time, if only I wasn't so lonely if only life got easier for once if only they understood where I was coming from if only we could afford to if only they'd known how important it was to study for the A-levels if only things were like they used to be if only Well, the Bible says what? If only what? What then? Here's the challenge. Next time you find yourself grumbling at the entrance of your tent, and next time you're anxious or disappointed, ask yourself, what is my if only, that if I had it, it would change everything? Grumbling is caused by an unbelief that looks for something else for deliverance, something else to fulfil me other than the God who promises that having rescued me, he will carry me and he will take me home. If only what then, says the Bible, take care lest you who stand fall. Now here's the third lesson. Grumbling is the sound a slave makes. You see, the sin of grumbling is like all sin. It enslaves us. It's a power. Do you believe that? I reckon that when it comes to sin in our lives, we massively underestimate how powerfully it affects us. When it comes to something like grumbling, we say, I grumble. It's just a sin I do from time to time. I I can see how it damages others, but not me. And other than the fact, I guess it's wrong, but I could stop any time. The Bible won't have a bar of that. It says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Sin is a power, it wages war on your soul, says 1 Peter. You see, when I sin with my mind, uh, over time it shrinks my rationality. Over time I grow more and more able to justify what I'm doing. When I sin with my heart, the Bible says it sears my heart. More and more I can't feel the damage. And when I sin with my will, it shatters my self-control. I'm, Proverbs says I am like a city without walls, without defence. And so you may think, yeah, I grumble from time to time, but I'm hardly a slave Really, says the scriptures? Then try to live this week without grumbling. Try it. And not just when all is well and the sun is shining, try not to grumble when you're in the valley. When you're faced with disappointment, with pressure, with frailty, with life this side of heaven. I suspect your experience, if you do try that, will be like the Apostle Paul who said in Romans 7 of his own battle with sin, he says, I have the desire to do what is good but I can't carry it out. That which I don't want to do, I keep doing. Well, Over the next few weeks we will see how God wonderfully enables us to do that very thing, to overcome the power of grumbling. But for today, see and take seriously its power. It leads to slavery. It's like an addiction. You see that pattern, verse 4? It begins with a craving, like any addiction. The heart that says, if only. And verse 5, the, the heart then goes on to what we think will fill that craving. For them, it's food without cost. Yes, that's what I need. And we grow fixed upon it, so much so that, verse 6, we lose our appetite for what God is giving us. And do you see God's response in Verse 18. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You will not eat it just for one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and you loathe it. God gives us over to our sin. That's why it enslaves us. God says you want meat to be your if only Israel rather than the God who brought you out of Egypt, then have your fill." And what you'll find is you will grow to loathe the very thing you wanted. We crave in our grumbling that which we think is going to take us above or out of our current situation. If I only had that, it's the logic of an addict. And then we grow more tolerant to the effect of our chosen drug. And the more I get, the more I need to feel content to not grumble. you ever felt that in your life? Take, for instance, the uh, the idol of career. It started with a rush. Remember that uh, moment when you got your first job in your chosen profession? Uh, I'm a doctor now, all that work, I'm finally here, I'm an accountant now, I'm a teacher now. What a rush. That's what the work was for. But over time, that rush dies. And you search in your career uh, for what might bring it back, uh, the promotion, uh, the raise, the acknowledgement, whatever it might be, and perhaps for a moment it does come back, that old familiar feeling, for a time, and then what? Or how about acknowledgement itself? I reckon most of us grumble about that. If only people valued me more, if only I was given the recognition I deserve. uh, We crave acknowledgement. But how much do you need? Is there an amount in your life where you say, that's enough? I've had enough acknowledgement for the rest of my life. No more. Well, how about children? That's where I'm at at the moment, weeks away from baby number four. And I'm at the if only I was beyond the phase of sleepless nights and endless nappies, then I'd be content. Really, Andrew? You chat to the families further along the path, and they have different grumbles. If only I could have those years back again. It was much simpler. You name it, health, wealth, friends, holidays, you crave things more than your God and you will make the sound a slave makes, grumbling. God says to Israel, have your fill of this thing you want till it comes out your nostrils. Our idols make loathsome gods. and So take seriously the sin of grumbling this morning. It is no small problem in our lives. It's all around us. It comes from an unbelieving heart and it is a sign that we who have been set free by Jesus are living like slaves. Now next week we will see how to overcome the power of grumbling but as we close, here's one final lesson. Grumbling has only one cure. Only one. And like many diseases, the cure is found in the cause. Have a look at verse 20. Speaking of the meat that Israel grumbled after, the Lord says this in verse 20. Literally, he says, You will loathe it because you have loathed me. God's cure for grumblers, for those who crave whatever it is else other before him, is to offer them something finally worth craving after, worth tasting. He does this because, as C.S. Lewis put it, we are far too easily pleased as people. God says the reason you grumble is you're trying to satisfy yourself with scraps, junk. Instead, uh, Psalm 34 verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. There is a cure for grumbling. It's not just trying to stop, it is tasting and seeing how good your God is. The secret of freedom from grumbling is being one who delights in God. He's your joy, not these things. And so if you are a grumbler, taste instead your God's love, his patience, his purposes, his promises to you, his faithfulness, his grace. Taste his holiness, his timely help, his creativity, his glorious son. Taste Jesus who says of himself in John's Gospel, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. The Christian answer to life in the wilderness, filled as it is, what we're told in this passage, with hardships, is not to be a stoic. It's not the sort of keep calm and carry on attitude, stiff upper lip, I'll get through this. I reckon far too often when it comes to being godly with something like grumbling, we we live as Christians as functional stoics, pretending that we're not grumbling. But the cure to grumbling is not to try and stop, but to taste instead how good your God is only time sitting at table with your God, feeding on him as he meets you in his word, feeding on his goodness revealed to you there, only that will guard your heart from grumbling. Because the more you taste and see his goodness, the more you will crave him above all else. And so that when your if-only moments come, and they will, you will have a new answer, a new place to go. Not your career or your health or your wealth or whatever, but to your Lord, whose mercies are new every morning. And so, brothers and sisters, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desire of your heart. Let's pray.